Well, good morning, Foothill. Good to see you all here. Let's grab our Bibles. I want you to go to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 1 through 7 today. So when we were kids, I don't know, I think it's probably true of every kid. Every, every kid is very, very curious. They're curious about what life is like. They're curious about what it's like to be a grown-up. They're curious about your job. So they'll say, Dad, Mom, what's it like doing this? What's it like being that? Um, I know that was true for me. Dad, what's it like being a lawyer? Dad, what's it like to be grown up? What's it like to be a father? Mom, what's it like to be uh, a mother? There's all this curiosity. We want to know what it's like. What Paul wants us to ask ourselves today is, what's it like being a Christian? What's it like to be? Have you ever thought about that? How would you answer that? If somebody asked you, what's it like to be a Christian? What's it like being a Christian for you? What would you say? And think about that specifically. Where would your mind go in, in, w- with that question? Would it, would it go someplace of, well, it means I have to do certain things, but I didn't ask you what you have to do as a Christian. What's it like to be a Christian? This is what Paul wants to focus our attention on. I would say that if you're going to answer that question, one of the places you'd want to turn would be to Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Because Paul's going to show us some things there. Now, let me kind of review before we dive in here real quickly. What's Paul been doing for the first three chapters? In fact, let me give you a little hint in setting your Bible. What you're going to find almost always with Paul is the first half of most of his books are all about the gospel. And the second half is all about now the practical impact of how that gospel begins to work out. So we're starting to move now towards how things start to practically work out. But Paul's not done with the gospel yet. Paul's not done telling you what Christ has done. He tries to think of every, he's a master teacher, he tries to think of every way he can to illustrate for you what Christ has done, what's happened in your life, what, what, he, what he provides for you, what it means to be a Christian. So what he's done now for the first three chapters is basically tell us over and over and over again that you have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That is that God's grace moved upon your heart, your faith, you put in Jesus Christ for your salvation. There was nothing else that had to be added to that faith. There wasn't some work, something you had to do in order to earn God's favor. It was simply, here is God saying, here's what Christ has done. You understand that, you believe that. And you're saved. No work of your own. No addition. It's, it's Christ and Christ alone and what he's done on the cross for you. And when you believe that, Paul says something legally happens to you. It's as though you're standing in a courtroom and the judge pounds the gavel and says, if you believe that Jesus Christ has paid all the penalty for your sin, you put your trust in what he's done for you, then you are what the Bible calls, what Paul says, justified. And this is a huge word in scripture. In fact, Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that this is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. It's a massive doctrine. But justification isn't all of the gospel. Right, as much as Paul wants to make of that in Romans and Galatians, it's not the whole gospel. It's not the end of the gospel. In fact, maybe, if I could say it this way, it's not even the best part. There's something really glorious about the gospel. Listen, listen to what J.I. Packer says. He says, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers 
even higher than justification. Now, why would G.I. Packer, this renowned theologian, say that adoption, there's this doctrine called adoption, why is that better than justification? Well, uh, because, because justification makes you right before God the judge. That's a good thing. I'm now right, right? He's pound the gavel. I have been made righteous. But adoption tells us that you're loved by God the Father. It's as though God takes off his robes, the judge's, you know, the judge's robes, comes out from behind the desk, grabs your hand and says, I want to adopt you as my son and I love you. So, so Packer goes on to say this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts, listen to this, and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well. Is that what prompts? Is that what governs? Is that what takes over your whole life when you think about God, when you think about your relationship? Is it, I'm frightened of him? Is it, I just know there's some of this intellectual, there's this, there's this legal righteousness I have before God? Or is there the sense that God is your father. See, if you ask Paul, Paul, what's it like being a Christian? Paul's going to say, it's like being a beloved son. It's like having a father who loves me. And by the way, if you weren't here last week, let me just say something. I'm going to talk about sonship a lot today. I'm not going to say son and daughter. And here's why. Ladies, I'm not excluding you. Because there's something radical that God is saying. And I want to make sure you didn't miss this if you weren't here last week. Or maybe you were and you didn't, it didn't register. When, when you see in your Bible that God calls you sons and you're saying, but I'm a woman. He's not taking away your gender. He's doing something radical here. He's saying to you that the only people in the, in, in the Bible that received an inheritance were, were the, the, the sons of the father. And what he's saying is that women, you are, and men, we are together included in that term. Not to diminish your femaleness, but to say, you get everything. There's not one part of this inheritance isn't coming to you. And so he's saying, this is what it's like. It's like being a beloved son who's going to get it all. So, so I want you to see the progression. Paul, again, he's going to illustrate something for us. He's going to say, let me, let me show you where you were, where we've come through, where this is all heading, okay? And so we'll just look at three things. We'll look at before we were sons, how we went from slaves to sons, and then from sons to heirs, okay? So let's start looking at chapter 4, verse 1, and I want you to see what Paul says, what's it like uh, before we were sons, okay? Verse 1. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now stop there. Go right back up to the very top. He says, I mean that the heir. So he says, like, in other words, I want to explain what I just said. I just ended chapter 3 by saying that your heirs according to promise. Now let me sort of flush that out for you. I mean this, that the heir, as long as a child, is no different than a slave. He's got guardians. He's got managers. These are over him until the date set by his father. 
Now, here's what's happening. Remember last week, we talked about this word guardian. It's the word we might think of as a tutor or better. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a, a Greek word, a pedagogue, and this was not a teacher. This was somebody who literally watched over, I mean, micromanaged the life of a wealthy son of, 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 of a Roman kind of uh, person in the hierarchy, right? So he, he was hired, he was a slave, he was, a, he was considered a good slave, and he would take that son and basically raise him. He was, he was everywhere where that son went. He could not go anywhere without the pedagogue, without this guardian. So these wealthy Roman children grew up in the presence of a guardian, and then they also had managers. And especially, the manager was there in case the father had died. The manager, we might think of it in modern terms as a trustee of an estate. That is, that we care for this. And what's happening? They, that, 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 that it's saying, what he's, Paul is saying is that one day this child is going to inherit his father's estate. But that day is not yet. And so all that he can look at is to say is that this, this future inheritance from my father is simply a promise. It's not a reality, right? You understand how this works, right? So in other words, it's like you hear about trust fund children or trust fund babies, this kind of thing. They're like, I'm not going to give a million dollars to a three-year-old. I'm not going to give this massive inheritance to, to manage all my properties and all my holdings to a 10-year-old. I'm going to wait Wealthy families do this today. We're going to wait until they reach some sort of maturity, until the date set by the parents. Here he says, set by the father. He'd be the one who does it. In the meantime, at least in Roman times, certainly not today, but in Roman times, the boy lived little better than a slave. In this sense, he, was, he had this cruel sometimes, I told you last week, the, the guardian very often is pictured in ancient Near Eastern literature with a rod in his hand because he would beat the child. Like, you step out of line, whack, right? This is what he did. He, he kept you from, you couldn't go, you couldn't do bad things. He was always on top of you telling you, this is right, this is wrong, don't you do that, you must do that, and you had to obey. The guardian would manage the estate. The guardian or the guardian would manage the boy. The manager would watch the property. But it was all for the boy's good, right? Because what you're doing, you're saying we're preparing, you're waiting for you to reach the age of maturity. We're waiting for you so you're ready to receive your father's inheritance. And it's on a date that has already been set. He knows... And you're going to get it all, but, but it waits for that. See, this is, this is what happens, right? This is, still happens today. People make wills. They make trusts. And, okay, this child's going to grow. And on his 25th birthday, when you know, these sort of things happen, when these conditions are met, then bam, he can, she can inherit this estate. Okay? So this is what happened. Paul says, I want to use this as an illustration of what's happened to us. Okay? So now keep going. And look what he says in verse 3. In the same way, okay, so now I'm going to take this analogy. I'm going to tell you this is what it was like. In the same way, when we were children, now what's he talking about? Spiritual children. When we were these spiritual children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now what's that? Okay, so Paul says, let's make this. I'm going to turn this 
this analogy into a spiritual parallel. We were children just like that before Christ. Remember last week was all about when Christ came, before Christ came, before faith came. This is what life was like. Paul's doing the same thing. It's like we were children, and when we were children, we were enslaved to these elementary principles. Now, what's that? Some of your footnotes, if you go down, it'll say something like elemental spirits. That is, a, that is one translation that, that would, would be proper. Uh, so some people think, well, that's like demonic spirits or things we were subject to them, which I think, biblically speaking, we could say that's true. I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. When he talks about elementary principles, I think he's saying that when we were enslaved, when we were under the law, it's like that was the basic teachings. Think of it as elementary school. So that we keep answering this question, why then the law? Well, the law is like elementary school. The law is basic teachings. The law is like the ABCs of the Christian faith. The law, let's say it this way, is like the alphabet of God's will. Okay, so this is what's happening. It's like grammar school. In fact, we used to call it that, right? There's, there was a grammar stage of learning. The Old Testament is like grammar school. It's teaching you very basic things. What do you do when you're in grammar school? You sit down. Remember that when you were in kindergarten and you got that ruled line of paper and it had a big hard line at the bottom, at the top, at the bottom, that dash line in between, and you had to write the letter A a million times, right? Just over and over. It had to fit in a certain spot, had to be done exactly right. And you learned over time, your muscle memory got better and better. You used to kind of go outside the lines, and it stayed in the lines. You got better and better and better and better as you grew in that. What were you doing? You were learning the ABCs. You learned how to write numbers. You learned how to count to a certain. You learned how to say words. All this is grammar school learning. But, but with grammar school, you don't learn why yet. You, you just know, I, I've got to learn to write this, this letter. I'm not sure what this letter does. All i got to do is learn the letter right now. And then you grow out of grammar school. At least you better, right? What is grammar? What, what's all that about? It's pointing to something. It's saying, keep doing this, kids. Like, keep walking through this. And eventually, that letter is going to turn into a word. And that word's going to turn into a sentence. And that sentence is going to turn into a paragraph and an essay and a story and a book. And this is the building block for what you need to know. Something better is coming out of this grammar school. We don't want kids to stay in grammar school. We want them to grow. We want them to learn something better. This is what's happening. Pa Paul is saying God was using the Old Testament grammar, the Old Testament ABCs, this law, to do what? To prepare us for something better. What's that something better? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's pointing to something outside. See, God never intended the law, the grammar school, to govern your entire life. He never intended that to be the way that we, we, uh, we had a relationship with him. That, that's not what God was doing. 
He didn't say, you know, grammar school doesn't get you very far. The law won't get you very far. The law won't get you to Christ. It may point you there, but it can't save you. It can't do any better. All the law is is primary school. All it is is a guardian, is a manager. All it is is a harbinger of something far, far greater that's coming your way. This is the law. But, but we so often live enslaved to these principles, don't we? This is how we relate to God. And so we step out of line or we don't step out of line. Why? Because we, we're afraid of him. I'm afraid of God the judge punishing me. So the reason I do good and the reason I avoid bad is I don't want to be punished. I don't want God the judge to be angry at me. That is elementary school. That is, a, that is a, a kind of relationship with God that has not moved beyond the ABCs of his will. See, this is why it's possible to do all the right things, avoid all the wrong things, and not be a Christian. Because you can do that. You understand this? You can do that without loving Jesus. Moms and dads, you can make your kids obey you, and they can obey you out of fear, or out of love, what do you ultimately want them to do? I want them to love you. I want them to obey me because they love me, not because they're afraid of me. Right? There might be, look, I understand that when I step out of line, that, that results in discipline. And at a young age, they may understand, okay, so I avoid that. But what you're hoping is that that grows then into something far, far greater. This is exactly what Paul is saying. This is what the law is meant to do. It's just grammar school. It's just this guardian. It's just these things that are preparing you for something far greater. So that's what life was like before we became sons. But now look what he says. Now we go from slaves to sons. God doesn't leave us there, right? He did two amazing things. And I want you to see this. We'll see two things that God did, radical things, drastic things, in order to bring you from the place of being a slave, being in elementary school, to graduate, to, to, to now being a son. So look at, look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. What's the first thing God did? God sent his son. God sent his son. I mean, this is radical. God says, okay, and look what he says. He did it to redeem us so that we might become, we might be adopted. We might become sons ourselves, right? Now, that's interesting. Why, why does sending Christ, I mean, do you see the logic there? He says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, under the law. What did he do to redeem those under the law? So that. In other words, the reason he did all this is so that we might be adopted. We might receive adoption of son. What in the world does the coming of Christ have to do, him, God sending his son, have to do with our adoption? There's been a lot of families at Foothill Church that have adopted children. At the, the, the Kitchells here, their grandchildren uh, are adopted. Um, and that's quite a process. 
I mean, many people at this church have been through this. They've gone from the foster adopt system, whatever, or you've adopted, and, and it is a huge process. And here's what I know. It's, it's a very complicated process. It's, it's, not, it's not just, you know, there's certain conditions that have to be met. And so if we liken, you know, sort of what happens here on earth in adoption, and we liken that to the adoption that God, that, that Paul is talking about, I think we can see some parallels here. And so look at, look at the conditions. Think about the conditions of how a mom and dad adopt a child. First of all, there's, there's all kinds of things. That it, that, that in order for an adoption to take place, they're, 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 it requires the right timing. Okay, so, so, so we read that when the fullness of time had come. See, when a mom and dad adopt a child, it's not a matter of just saying, you know what, I don't have a child, I'm willing, and there's kids that need to be adopted. Let's do this today. It's not going to happen, right? There's going to be all kinds of conditions, there's be all kinds of timing. Certain things have to be in place from the state's point of view, from your point of view. All these things have to sort of converge at this moment in time that brings these, these individuals together and makes them a family. So this is what God did. He says when the fullness, that is when time was fully ripe, when it was the perfect moment, God made this happen. God brought time to this place so that adoption could take place. So how was it so perfect? He, he prepared everything, right? He got everything ready. Everything was intentional. So now we can say that the timing was perfect um, theologically. That is that now the Old Testament had been written, right? That old grammar school had been put in place. It had pointed, pointed, pointed. Everything. We don't read our Old Testament without reading our New Testament because we see that everything points ultimately out of there to Christ. He gave us that, right? So now the time is fully ripe. The law has been given. It was, it was, it was the right timing religiously. That is that now there was a spiritual hunger waiting. Please, God, send the Messiah, right? So if you know your Bible history, you know that when the last book, Malachi, was written, there was 400 years of silence. No prophet speaking for God. People wondering, where is God? We need him. We need God to come to us again, hungering for that. And then God says, I was ripening everything. The Roman gods have proven to be bankrupt. There was nothing in them. Everybody was hoping for something spiritual to happen. God said, wait for this right time. When the fullness of time, it was, it was being prepared, it was already, the timing was perfect culturally. I mean, think about this. Rome had now conquered the known world and, and now the Greek language had become the common tongue so you could go from one side of the Roman Empire all the way to the other side of the Roman Empire and you could speak with people. And God knew this. God, God's doing all this, right? I'm, I'm, I'm creating this. I'm ripening time so that this happens so that when the Messiah steps on, the good news of Jesus Christ comes into the world, now this good news can spread. I mean, just boom, people can speak to each other, talk about what happened. And it was, it was perfect politically. The Pax Romana had taken root. That is the peace of Rome, right? You studied about this in your history classes where now, now you could travel without fear. You, commerce could go back and forth. So now the good news could come. I have a language. They speak on the other side of the known world. I can travel there in safety. I can get to them and I can tell them the good news. 
And God's doing all this. He says, this is what made the timing perfect. Everything was ready. If you're going to have an adoption, then it requires the right timing. But if you're going to have an adoption, it requires the right qualifications. Talk to anybody who's been through an adoption process and what do they do? Man, they do home studies and fingerprinting and background check and screenings and all these kind of things they have to go through to prove I have the qualifications. We have the qualifications necessary in order to adopt this child. So what about spiritually? Like if that's required to adopt an earthly child, what in the world is required to adopt a son of God? Well, somebody's got to pay for our sins. Who's qualified to do that? So somebody's got to take care of all these qualifications to make sure everything's ready. Who does that? There's only one that can do it, and it's Jesus. And Paul makes sure you know this. So, so look how he says that when the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his son. He's divine. He's fully God. But then he says, interestingly, born of a woman. Now, why does he add that? Maybe, maybe some of you come out of a Roman Catholic background and you would, you would say you would talk to Mary, the mother of God. Uh, that, that term, by the way, comes from several hundred years ago. The early church came up with this term, theotokos, which means mother of God. And it wasn't meant to revere Mary. It was meant to show that Jesus, the son of God, God, very God, pass through a woman's birth canal. So what is he saying? He's just born of a woman. He's saying not only fully divine, he's fully human. He's a man, right? And then he goes on to say, but, but also born under the law. That is that he had a Jewish mom and he had a Jewish dad and he, had a, he was part of a Jewish nation and he was subject to all the Jewish laws. And so he had to obey all those laws. And the Bible tells us he did that perfectly. In fact, in fact Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, this is why Jesus is so awesome. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been taken. Tempted as we are, and yet without sin. So, so this is the qualifications, right? This is what God did. So, so it makes John Stott, listen now, John Stott summarizes these qualifications for adoption. He said, if he, that is Christ, had not been man, he could not have redeemed men. If he had not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous men. And if he had not been God's son, he could not have redeemed men for God or made them the sons of God. So he had to have the perfect qualifications in order to adopt us as sons. And he does. It turns out Jesus is the only one. But the last thing is that an adoption requires resolve. Right? That is, it's intentional. I don't know anybody that accidentally adopted a child. Right? Like you, you go, I want to. I'm going after. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. There's a purpose behind the adoption. What's God's purpose behind this? Well, did you see what he said? He says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman born to redeem. To redeem. Now, this comes out of the slave market. This is interesting. In Roman times... You could, you could buy a slave, and if the master wanted to, he could adopt that slave as a son. 
It's a good slave. And don't think 18th century America slavery. This is not the kind of slavery happening in Rome. Any slavery is bad, but Roman slavery was not near as horrific as, as American slavery. But here's, here's a master saying, I want to adopt this. I'm going to redeem you so that I can adopt you. All along this, I have this intention to make you my son, right? See, adoptive parents go, I, we want to adopt a child. And many times it's, we want to adopt that child. Like that's the one we're going to have. Now this is, by the way, let me, let me, let me say, this is where... American adoptions or modern-day adoptions are very, very different uh, from what the Bible paints of adoption. And here's a, here's a distinction you need to understand, right? We tend to have, if you will, a romantic view, an idealized view of adoptions in this sense. These poor children need a home. They're innocent. They've done nothing. Can't we just go and bring them home and give them a place to live and get them out of, of, of the, the awfulness that they're a part of and, 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 and bring them into this family fold? And it's all this one. They're just innocent, these dove-eyed children, you know, weeping dirty. And if I could just bring them home and clean them up and get them out of that drug-infested environment or whatever it is, then their life will be turned upside down. Who wouldn't want to adopt a child like that is not the biblical picture. This is where the biblical picture of adoption is so radical. God is so different from us. Russell Moore, um, maybe you've heard of him, he's written a wonderful book called Adoption for Life. He is an adoptive parent himself. I believe he adopted two children from Russia. And he, he, he talks about what the Bible has to say about this doctrine of adoption. But listen to how he... Um, makes a differentiation and says, here's the biblical view of adoption. He says, imagine for a moment that you're adopting a child. Now, now hear this carefully. As you meet the social worker in the last stage of the process, you're told that this 12-year-old has been in and out of psychotherapy since he was three. He persists in burning things and attempting repeatedly to skin animals alive. He acts out sexually, and she never really tells you what that means. He comes from four generations of fathers with histories of violence, ranging from spousal abuse to murder. Each of them ended their own lives. Now think for a minute, he says. Would you want this child? If you did adopt him, wouldn't you watch nervously as he played with your other children? Would you watch him nervously as he looks at the knife on the kitchen table? Would you leave the room as he watched a movie on TV with your daughter with the lights out? And then he says, that's you. That's me. And this is what God did for you and me. This is the link. See, in other words... Unlike so many adoptive parents, he didn't look at us and say, I find something so desirable about you. Paul's going to say, there's nothing good in me that is in my flesh. There's nothing that he saw in us that says, I'm drawn to you, Chris, because you're fantastic, because you're 
innocent. No, in fact, he's just says, I'm, what, what, what the Bible teaches is that what I did was I, I spent my days in lusts and cravings. I spent my days ignoring God. I did what I wanted to do. In fact, when the God who wanted to adopt me began to reveal, I may have even rejected him and said, I don't want to be adopted. I don't want to be your son. I don't want to be your child. I don't want to ignore you. I want to act like you don't exist. I want to do what I want to do. This is the biblical view of adoption. And yet God comes to us, right? And he says, I'm just, I'm just determined to adopt you as my son, Chris. Why? Why, God? Why, why would you love me like that? Why would you adopt me? Let me tell you what. When you start asking questions like that, that's the beginning of worship. Why would you adopt me? How would God answer that question? Some of you know the name David Platt, written several books, and he's also an adoptive parent. He and his wife adopted, I think, a couple of children. And he said he was playing with one of his sons one day, and you know that age when kids are really little and they ask why, why mommy, why, why, why this, why that, why daddy, why, why you, you know, why are you cooking that way, why are you doing that, why are you kneading the dough, why are you, why are you working the garden, dad, what is that, why, 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 right? The son was doing this, and somehow it came up, you know, why, why are we doing this? Well, because I love you, dad. You know, and it got to adoption, dad. Why did you adopt me? Because I love you, son. Why do you love me? And David Platt said, I, I couldn't help it. I just started crying. He said, son, why did I adopt you? Because I loved you. I wanted you. So I came to get you. I think that's what Jesus would say. I think that's what God would say. Why you? Why you, Chris? Because you were innocent no, because I wanted you. And so I came to get you. This is adoption. God sent his son to redeem us out of slavery and then to adopt us into sonship. But he did more than that. Look at verse 6. He sent his spirit. And because your sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. He sent his spirit. Why? Because it's possible for you to have an intellectual faith. To know, you know what, I know intellectually that I'm saved. But God, can I say it this way? God wants you to know that you're saved experientially. Let's say it this way. He wants you to feel it in your bones. And so he sends the spirit of his son. He sends Christ to adopt us as his children. He sends the spirit, the spirit of Christ, so that we could really know that that adoption is true. See, see the law will just make God a terror to you. That's why Paul's telling you this. It'll just make you afraid of God. Right, but... He'll be your judge. There'll be no intimacy, right? It'll just be distant. It'll be aloof. There'll, there'll be this, yeah, I know, I know God loves me, but you won't feel this. Can I say it that way? So what does he do? I'm going to send my spirit to you. That spirit of my son is now going to dwell in you. And the same way Jesus cried out to me, Abba, Father, that cry will come from you. And it's a cry. 
Now think about this, kids. Think about this, adults. What made us cry to our father? Cry out, Daddy. That's a cry of help. That's not just a cry of familiarity. That's a cry that says, I need protection. Daddy, I need your help. Daddy, I'm facing something that I didn't know I was going to have to face. Right? This is what happens. When I hear news I never thought I'd hear, when I receive the diagnosis that I, I thought I wouldn't get, when I find myself in circumstances I never thought would happen to me, something inside of me cries out, Abba, Father, and I'm not alone. I'm not alone, right? I won't, I'll know that I'm not alone. See, this is, this is one of the reasons I think, saint, God allows suffering. So often, what does that suffering do? That suffering turns God from just this sort of intellectual, yeah, I know that I'm saved, to I know in my bones. And you will have people tell you that I walked through a valley in my life. I walked through the valley of the shadow of death. Saints that ultimately that trial takes them to their death. And they will tell you on their deathbed. They will tell you as they journey through it. I wouldn't take this back for the world. Because here's where I knew that God was my father. For the first time in my life. I heard Abba, Father. And I knew he was there. That's the cry. So God sends his son. God sends his spirit. Are you a son? Are you a son? I didn't ask you, do you go to church? Do you pray? Do you read your Bible? Those may be evidences of sonship. But do you look to God? Is the impulse of your heart to look and say, God is my father. That's how I view him. This is the fundamental identity of saints in Scripture. But now, let me look at one last thing. Now we go. We've gone from before we were sons, from slaves to sons, and now from sons to heirs. So look at verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. So you have passed, right? You now, you've passed from this to that. You've now gone from I didn't own anything to now I get it all. I have an inheritance. I'm blessed, right? What are those blessings? We could go on and on about those, but let me just tell you some of the biggies. You have a father. And you have a real father. You have a father in heaven who loves you. And this is a father who just like he looked upon Jesus and said when Jesus came out of the water, he said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Do you understand, Christian, that's the same thing God would say to you? Why? Because he looks at you as though you had done everything that Jesus has done. Because you're in Christ. You've been buried with him. You've raised, you were crucified with Christ, Paul told us a few weeks ago. Nevertheless, you live, but it's not I, but Christ lives in me in life now. I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
So now I've got a father, and a father who's not angry with me, a father who's not constantly looking for ways to judge my behavior, but constantly loving me and hear me. If that makes you nervous and think, man, then, then that means that I can do whatever I want. I'll just say this. You won't ever see that in Scripture. You will never see somebody who knows in his bones that he's a child of God being rebellious. You will never see them becoming less holy. You'll see them becoming more holy. You will never see them becoming less of a saint. You'll see them becoming more of a saint. Because they know their love perfectly. But you only have a father. You have second. You have a family. God is your father. Christ is your brother. Right? You've been adopted into this family of God that spans the world, that spans generations, that spans human history. And then finally, you have a home. You have an eternal home. See, this is like adoption. When God, when, when a parent brings a child after an adoption is over into their home, the judge has pounded the gavel, you come home with me now, son, you come home with me now, daughter, they're there. And no one will ever come and take them away from you. So this is it. What is it like to be a Christian? It's like being a beloved son of the most amazing father, the most caring, encouraging, protective, providing father that you and I could ever dream of. And the one who says, now you're mine, and no one will ever take you away from me. You're mine. And I loved you. And so I came to get you. That's adoption. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Lord, the, the scripture is so rich with metaphors, with truths that teach us. God, this isn't just a, an analogy, God. This is a truth. If we are children of God, we have been adopted by the Most High God. We, we are now sons men and women, full inheritors of everything that you could ever promise to us, Lord. We get that because we have placed our faith, our trust, our hope in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that that would not be merely intellectual understanding for us today, but you drive that into our hearts where our spirit would cry out, Abba, Father. That, Lord, this would be the fundamental way that we relate to you. This is a father shows compassion on his children. A father rises to love and care for us. A father who delights in our laughter. A father who delights in, in all the ways that we try to walk and be obedient to you. And so God, we can rest confident today that you delight in us today. And I thank you for that, God. I pray, Lord, for anybody in this room that God, they've never heard the truth like this. They understand maybe Jesus died for their sins. They've heard that a billion times, but they understand that what happens is how you, you not only legally declare us righteous, but, Lord, you experientially adopt us into your family. And I pray, Lord, that would just settle deep into our hearts, into our bones today, that we would know that. 
I pray that those who have never called upon the name of the Lord to be saved would do that. Lord, all they're doing is living in elementary school. They're enslaved to these elementary principles of fear. This is how they relate to you. But God, today, Lord, the dam would break. Their hearts would be opened. And by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, they would become children of God, adopted into your family, I pray. We love you, we thank you, and we ask this in Jesus' name.